Well, this morning we will continue to explore the parables of our Lord from Matthew chapter 13. Last week we looked at the parable of the sower and the soils and really took note of Jesus' sobering look at true and false conversion. As we recall, the parable is any story or situation or analogy that is used to illustrate a deeper truth. It's a very simple story with a very deep meaning attached to it. And Jesus tells the story of this sower that scatters seed on four different kinds of soil, the hardened soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and finally the good soil. And this is symbolic, as we saw, of the Word of God being proclaimed to various types of hearers. Some have a hardened heart and don't care about the things of God, and so they do not hear the Word, they don't understand, they don't believe. Others have a more impulsive heart, and they respond to the gospel emotionally, but quickly give it up as soon as it becomes difficult for them, and they fall away because they're not truly saved. And others appear to receive the word and to grow, but then the thorns of the life, they grow up and they choke out their faith and they choke out their profession and they kill it off. And how do we know that that's what's happened? Well, Jesus says that they bear no fruit. Fruitfulness has always been a requirement or an evidence of saving faith, Elsewhere in John chapter 15, it says that if you bear no fruit, no fruit, he says you are cut off and thrown into the fire. Why? Because at that point, there is no evidence that you belong to him at all. The last soil is the good soil that receives the word of the gospel and produces fruit. And that he indicates it's some is a hundredfold, some is 60, some is 30. There's always going to be fruit of various kinds and different levels of fruit from those who belong to him. But the question naturally arises then, well, how do I really know who belongs in the kingdom? And furthermore, how do we stop the infiltration of false converts that come into the church? How do we guarantee a pure church? Because that's what we want. We want a pure church. The disciples are no doubt wondering the very same thing. And so we see this discussion basically arise out of Matthew chapter 13. So if you haven't already turned there, please turn to Matthew 13 with me. Matthew 13 consists almost entirely of parables. And why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, really two reasons. One, to conceal the truth from those who have hardened their hearts against the Lord. And number two, to reveal the truth to his followers, granting them further understanding. And the structure of Matthew 13 is such that Jesus spends a large portion of the time teaching all the crowds, and then later the disciples come back to him for further understanding. And so in verse 10, for example, the disciples, they they come to him and they ask him questions about his method of teaching. Why do you only give the crowds parables? But then later on in verse 36, they specifically ask Jesus to explain to them the meaning of one of the parables that he has given, which is the one for today, the parable of the tares. This format explains why we have sections of parables early on and then explanations later. It would make the most sense from a a literary perspective that they would just follow one after another. But the nature of the day, he's given the parables, they go away and they ask him questions after. And so Matthew, as the gospel writer, follows that pattern, which is why the parable and the explanation is so broken up. So we're following that, the course of that that, uh, split to give a fuller sense of the teaching. 
uh, week in and week out here. Uh, and so today we're going to hit the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. So that is going to be Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so as we did last time, we will first examine the parable itself and sort of explain the details. And I want to get the, this parable, the actual working parts of the parable into our minds and then we'll see the application or the understanding afterwards. So look at verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus launches into his second of seven unique parables in this chapter. Now, a few weeks ago, I said that there were actually eight parables here. It really, that has to do with the fact that in verse 52, that could possibly be considered a parable. It's a parabolic statement, but it also could simply be an analogy. So uh, many scholars believe that there are only seven parables in this chapter, and that's fine. Verse 24 again, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. This is the first time in the chapter that we see he presents the parable for the purpose of illustrating what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven. Now he will explain or explore, I should say, the kingdom of heaven as a theme later on in verses 31, 33, 44, 45, and 47. So the kingdom of heaven becomes a, a dominant theme in these parables. And Lord willing, we're going to unpack that theme next week. I want to give to you a sort of a summation of the teaching of the kingdom of heaven, and then we'll see a couple of parables that illustrate that as well. But for our purposes today, to give you just a very generic definition of what the kingdom of heaven is, it is roughly this. It is the realm of salvation. The realm of salvation. It includes all those who have been redeemed in Christ. So all Christian believers are part of the kingdom of heaven. But it also extends to all of that which is subject to the righteous reign of Christ. That is over and against the kingdom of darkness. Now you would think that all of creation is the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven, but there is a spiritual component there where the kingdom of heaven is opposed to the kingdom of darkness and wickedness and sin. So again, it is the realm of salvation in which the Lord is operating. Again, that's just a very generic definition. We're going to explore this again, hopefully, next week in greater detail. But the purpose of this parable is to illustrate a greater truth about Christ's kingdom. Jesus says in verse 24, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who has sowed good seed in his field. Not that the kingdom itself is a man, but it is, in this case, likened to the man's specific situation. It is the situation that Jesus is describing. He seizes really on a common occurrence of a, a farmer or a sower sowing seed into his field. Again, it's very similar to the previous parable that we looked at. 
but it's more specific to the situation of the sower who is now choosing to sow seed into good soil. And it says he's sowing good seed into presumably good soil. And so at this point, we have moved away from the different kinds of soil toward the actual planting of good seed that is expected to produce a good crop. Now, Jesus is seizing on that, if you will, to move the teaching ahead. And then we read in verses 25 and 26. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Verse 26 says that there were men. These are workers in his field. He calls them later on his slaves, the slaves that are working in the field. They're at home. They're sleeping for the night. So they're off the job. They're home resting. And while they're home resting in the stealth of the night, the enemy sneaks into the field and sows tares among the wheat. What is a tear? Well, the Greek word is zizania. It literally means weeds. But scholars believe that based on the reference that's given here, this is a very specific kind of a weed. It's a, a plant known as a bearded darnel. A bearded darnel is the name of this plant. And the reason is because the darnel looks identical to wheat while it's still in its infant stages. So when they grow up together, you can't tell the difference between the two. It's only discernible as a weed after it becomes full grown. And that's what's taking place in verse 26. Then when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the tares who did not sprout good grain, they became evident. Oh, that's, that's this Darnell plant. Now at first glance, it seems like the perpetrator of this story is simply pulling a prank on the sower, tricking him into planting fake wheat. And this is really on the very surface, it just seems like, oh, what's the big deal? So you had some bad plants in your, in your garden, big deal. But the, the truth, it's far more sinister than that. Because the darnel is actually poisonous to both humans and animals. It's a poisonous plant if you were to eat it. And so to sow darnel into a wheat field is essentially to lace someone's food supply with poison. And this is oftentimes done as a revenge tactic in the ancient world. In fact, it became such a problem that the Roman government in Jesus' time enacted a law against tampering with someone else's garden. And so look at verse 27. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed into your field? How then does it have tares? This is not an accusation against the landowner. They're not saying, well, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you sow the right kind of seed? Rather, it's a statement of shock and, and puzzlement. Uh, why are there tares in the field? D didn't we sow good seed? Didn't you sow good seed? Why is this happening? They're trying to figure out what's going on. Well, the, the landowner, he knows what's going on. Verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. He knows what happened. Because the, the Bible says here that, that the, the, the tares were sowed among, among the wheat field. So it's not just a couple that sprouted up here and there. They're sown in all over the field. He knows what's happened. An enemy has come in and deliberately sown in this poisonous weed into the good crop. And so, like a, a dutiful group of labor, laborers, they, res, they respond and they say, well, what do you want us to do? Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Let's go and get the tares out of them before they poison more of the field. We don't want them to grow, do we? But the landowner stops them, verse 29. He says, no, no, 
For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. That's a problem. See, when the plants are young, the root systems become so intertwined. They're very, very fragile. They, they grow together. They become intertwined. And the problem is if you start pulling out the tares, you would, will invariably uproot wheat as well. And if that happens, it, the risk is destroying the entire good crop. And you don't want to do that. So what's his solution? Verse 30. He says, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So at the time of the harvest, when everything is ripe and ready to go, it's going to be up to the reapers, not the sowers and the planters, but the reapers are going to come in. They're skilled laborers. They know the difference between a good plant and a bad plant. And they will work diligently to sort everything out, and they'll see very clearly what is wheat and what is darnel, what is weeds and poisonous crops. And so they will examine, they will root everything out, and all the plants that have produced a good grain, they'll be gathered up and they'll be stored in the barn, and they'll be useful. While the tares will be, they'll become very evident, and they'll be gathered up, bound up, and burned in the fire, and they'll be consumed. And so ends the parable. Now, later on in that day, the disciples there questioning the meaning of the parable. Look at verse 36. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So Jesus had been previously teaching. He's been sitting on that boat. Remember, he actually went away from the crowds a little bit. He got into a boat and rode out a little bit across the water. And then they were all standing on, on the beach. This is a chance for him to kind of get some distance to be able to preach and, and teach in a way that they could all hear. And so he's left that and he's gone back into the house that he was ministering in previously. And now he's going to give private instruction. But it's my suspicion, however, that the disciples, they at least understand some of the parable. They know some of the parable. And here's why. Because they'd have, they would have already known what the good seed was. They would have known that the good seed was referring to true believers these are, these are the fruitful believers. This would have been very obvious to them. Yet the prevailing question in their mind, and certainly our mind, is why is the wheat growing with the tares? Why are they together? Remember, the tares are poisonous. That's bad. We don't want that in this field. So why are they growing together? Why would any sower allow a poisonous tare to grow in his garden? That's the question. And so Jesus proceeds to give understanding. And in verses 37 through 39, he really sets the stage for all the actors in this story. He explains and defines all the symbols that he's going to use. And so he notes first in verse 37, he says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Son of Man is a messianic title. It's a Messiah title. For the Lord, it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, where Daniel is seeing this vision of heaven, and he looks and he sees the glories of heaven, and then right in the midst of all of that, he sees one standing like a son of man. And, that, and it's weird to him. There shouldn't be a man standing in heaven with, with the glory of God displayed. Who is this son of man? This becomes a reoccurring theme. And every Jew in Israel would have understood this as the title for Messiah. That's the, the long-awaited deliverer to come to us. 
Jesus frequently uses this title for himself. He himself claims to be the Son of Man, the long-awaited Messiah. And so Jesus says that it is his work to scatter the seed of the gospel, which takes root in the good soil and sprouts up as believers. And so, yes, obviously, ministers of the gospel, pastors and preachers and elders and evangelists and all of you who share the gospel, all people who share the gospel are doing the work of the Lord, but it is the Lord's seed and the Lord's work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that while you might plant and I might water, it's God who causes all the growth. So God is the reason that there are believers sprouting up in his field. But he is the sower of the seed. Yet here he says in verse 38... The good seed, those are the sons of the kingdom. Now, we understand that the Lord is allowed to mix metaphors because previously the the seed was the word of God. Now he's making the seed into believers. So now it's different. But how he tells the story is his prerogative. He is switching the metaphor because he, he wants to tell a different story with this parable. But it's important here to see that he is the one who is sowing true believers into his field. He's the one. Then the question becomes, well, then what is the field? What is the field? In verse 38, Jesus says, the field is the world. Interestingly enough, studying this out, there's, a, there's quite a bit of discussion about Jesus saying that the field is the world. And certainly in the academic Christian community, there's lots of discussion about this. Well, why? Well, because for centuries, scholars and believers and theologians, they've taught the sentiment that This refers to the church that is in the world. So the the field is the whole world, and there are believers all throughout the whole world. There is a church that lives in the world. And if that's the case, then the parable is discussing the reality of both wheat and tares within the visible church. Because remember, anytime there are believers, and there is the word of God being preached, and there's ordinances, and there is a formalized assembly, the church is there, and they're doing ministry that's all, that's all across the world. But the issue with this then, if that's true, if, if there are wheat and tares in the visible church, the question that has arisen here has to do with the issue of, of, of the Lord commanding them not to uproot the tares from this, this gathering. And if that's the case and we're not to uproot the tares from this gathering, then this is warning against the, the impulse to remove false converts from the assembly through church discipline. Of course, this contradicts passages like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. Um, It begs the question then, does the church, or excuse me, does Jesus intend to speak of the church that's in the world or the church and the world? If he's saying that the, the field is the world, then we're talking about now true believers in the church and all the false professors and all the, the, the children of Satan throughout the, all, through, all through the course of the world. So we're going to come back to this question. Now, this is important for us. Let's go back to definitions for just a second. End of verse 38, Jesus says that the tares, the tares, the poisonous weeds, are the sons of the evil one. Again, these are unregenerate unbelievers, those who don't have any love for Christ at all, those who hate the gospel, who hate the Lord, those are the sons of the evil one. Paul says the very same thing in, first, uh, excuse me, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. He says, before we were saved, we were sons of the enemy. We were the, those who were disposed to doing the, the wicked deeds of darkness. I mean, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That was us. Verse 39, the enemy who sows them 
is the devil. He has the prominent influence over these unregenerate believers. And then he says, the harvest is the end of the age when Jesus comes back at the very end of judgment day. And the reapers are the ones who serve the Lord. Those are the angels. So we have to examine what's going on here. Again, much depends on how we understand the field. Jesus says, the field is the world. Now, in the most general sense, this represents all the people that are in the world. Right now, there are nine billion people in the world. And at that point, Jesus, as the gospel sower, is planting Christians all over the known world. And all those Christians are going to sprout up the fruit of faith. They have saving faith. And they begin to produce the fruit of, of godliness and righteousness. And eventually they will be gathered up into heaven to be with the Lord forever. But the parable figures that Satan is sneaking in and sowing the, the sons of the evil one into the world to poison the Lord's field. And they will grow together with believers until the end of the age. Look at verse 40. And so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Now, we know that this is certainly true. At the end of the age, at judgment day, Christ will judge all peoples around the world, all who, who have rejected the gospel and spurned the law of God, Christ will judge them. In fact, John 5.22 says that all judgment has been given to the Son, Jesus. And so this will be his vengeful act of judging all sinners according to the standard of righteousness in God's law. He notes this in verses 41 and 42. Look at verses 41 and 42. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, this is basic Christian doctrine. This is very basic. This is also very basic Jewish doctrine. All the believers, all the, the, the Jews that were listening, the disciples, they would have known this to be true. Of course, that's what's going to happen. But there seems to be a little bit more here. The fact that Satan sows, as it were, his own children into the world is evident. There's no great mystery. They would not have come back to him if they knew and understood that Satan was simply sowing his own children into the world. That's, that's very easy. And the Jews at the time, they recognized that all Gentiles, in their perspective, all Gentiles were children of the devil. That's why it was so shocking when the gospel came to the Gentiles and Jesus told them, no, now they're going to be with you. They were like, what are you talking about? Those are the pagans. So for the Jews, this is very distinct. Of course, those out in the world belong to the enemy and we are the people of God. So that's not a, a hard distinction to make. That's not difficult. But the parable here seems to be pointing to the reality that Satan is sowing tares into the field of the visible church. Now, in the most general sense, there are two ways to think about the church. When we think about church, what are we talking about? There is what we know to be the visible church, the visible church. And that is basically the face of Christianity, as it's seen by the outside world. And so anytime you walk into this building and sit down, you're identified with this church. And even if you walk in and you're not a Christian, say you're an atheist and you have no desire to be here whatsoever, 
but you're just curious about what's happening or say you want to look at the windows for the day or whatever the issue is, as soon as you walk in and sit down, people outside the church will say, oh, you must be a Christian because you went to that church. And that's, but what's the, that's the visible church. Anytime someone identifies or is aligned with the visible expression of Christianity, that is the visible church. It is comprised primarily of those who profess to know Christ and align with the church. And then there's something called the invisible church. The invisible church. That is only what God can see. And only God can see whether or not you have genuine saving faith in the heart of you as a believer. So what actually comprises Christ's church spiritually, genuinely, purely, only God really knows. Now, we do all that we can as believers in, in holding fast the, the keys of the kingdom here to identify, is this person a Christian? Are they not a Christian? Now, I can't judge your heart. I don't know whether or not you really truly have saving faith. Nobody really knows, only God. But there are evidences. Do you understand the gospel? Can you articulate something of the gospel? Do you have a, a testimony of how you came from lawlessness and sinfulness into loving Christ and loving his church? Do you have a, a hatred for your own sin? Do you love righteousness? Do you endeavor to do the things of righteousness? Do you love the, the bride of Christ? Do you love the assembly? Do you have a love for people who are lost? Again, none of that guarantees for sure that you have saving faith. Again, only God knows that. But those are evidences. That's fruit. And so we as believers, we examine and see each other's fruit and say, well, that person is a believer. And, and again, that's our best judgment. But once again, only God really knows who belongs in his church. We know that that is, there's a, a kingdom of darkness that cannot infiltrate the kingdom of light. So Satan is not able to sow unbelievers into Christ's true church. We know that's true. Well, why do we know that? Well, because salvation is solely a work of God. Jesus Christ, the perfect and spotless sacrifice, he gives himself up to die on the cross. He dies to pay the penalty for sins, satisfies the wrath of God that's against the sinner, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. He dies on the cross. He's buried in the ground and he resurrects to new life on the third day. And by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, dead sinners who were pag pagan, <clears throat> excuse me, they were pagan, they were lost, they were the sons of the evil one. They become new creatures in Christ by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Now, understanding that and believing that and knowing that, we understand that no amount of human effort can attain salvation. I can't just go and muscle my way into heaven. I can't come to church one day and, and decide, you know what? I like this. I'm just going to, I'm going to do it and say, and say, you know what? I'm, I'm a good person. I'm going to go to church every Sunday. You know, I'm going to put a whole bunch of money in the offering box. That's going to do the trick. You, you cannot muscle your way in. And contrary to that, the fact that you can't muscle in, Satan's opposition, he can't thwart anybody coming into the kingdom of heaven. So just like you can't power your way in, Satan can't power you out. Only God Almighty saves. This is really important. Really important. Salvation is of the Lord. 
And if you have come to saving faith in Christ, praise God. Literally, praise Him. Because He's the one who drew you in, forgave your sin, loved you, even though you were an enemy, granted you saving faith, regenerated you, made you an adopted child of Himself, drew you out of the world, and made you His own. It's by His grace that you're saved. And so if that's true, those who have repented of their sins, believed on Christ for salvation, that's all believers that come into God's invisible church. However, there are unbelievers. There are unbelievers who come into the visible church. And we see this all the time. This happens all the time. Now, sometimes it takes a while to figure out that a person doesn't really love the Lord and then goes away. But we hear stories about it all the time. A person who professes faith in Christ, maybe they go to church for a long time, maybe they're in church leadership for a long time, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, that they are renouncing their faith entirely. And they walk away unrecognizable and cursing the church on the way out. Now, going back to the previous statement here, we want unbelievers to come and hear the gospel. I, I love that there are people who come into this church and sit down and hear the, the message of the gospel preached and hear the words of the gospel sung, and hear the prayers of the saints, and hear and see us worshiping God, that's good. I will never turn my back, and I pray you'll never turn your back on any unbeliever who wants to come and hear the gospel. I don't care what their story is. I don't care what they look like when they walk in the door. That doesn't matter. However, the gathered assembly is comprised of believers. It's for the church. And we are allowing, welcoming anybody who comes in to hear that message. But this is, this is a, the, to the best of our ability, the, the beloved of God, the invisible church made visible. But there are those who have been sown in by the devil, those who belong to Satan and the kingdom of darkness. And the Bible, I believe, teaches, I think what Jesus is saying here is that they have been sown in among us for the expressed purpose of trying to destroy the work of the Lord. This isn't talking about believers sitting in the assembly. This is talking about Satan trying to rout the work of God in the local assembly by bringing in those who hate God and want to destroy his work. James Boyce marks this way, the devil is mixing counterfeit Christians in among true Christians to hinder God's work. Satan is trying to poison the harvest field. He's been doing it for millennia. He always does it. Now, our immediate reaction is to say, quick, we need to uproot all the false Christians in order to preserve the purity of the church. We've got to work hard at that. We've got to get rid of all of them and make sure that we have a pure assembly here. That's certainly the disciples' heart. That was their impulse. Well, how do we know? Remember back when James and John, in Luke chapter 9, they experience opposition to the Lord's kingdom, and he's standing there and he's being attacked by people, and, and what do they say to the Lord? Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We'll do it. Just give us the power. We'll do it. How does Jesus respond? He actually rebukes them for this. And he says, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I didn't come to blow people up. I didn't come to destroy false converts. I came to save that which has been lost. 
The disciples are essentially asking for permission to rip out the tares. Give us the, give us the authority, Lord. We want to rip out all the tares for you and preserve the unity of what you're, what you're building in the world. But the danger, my friends, the danger is that in doing that, you run the risk of destroying true believers. And this is always a danger. Always a danger. And I'll tell you, in ministry, pastors, elders, leaders, we always struggle with that tension. How much do you grant? How gracious are you to those who profess faith in Christ? You want to be gracious. You want to believe the best about them. When someone professes, I love Jesus, you want to believe that. And so you're, you believe, but you're also a little bit tentative. You're a little bit, you're a little bit withdrawn because frankly, you don't know. And you don't want to celebrate and say, well, all right, we've got a whole new person, a new believer, and praise the Lord and come to find out they're actually a tear. But you also don't want to do the opposite and become miserly and, and speculative and, and skeptical and, well, I don't know, they've got to prove themselves. You can't do that either. And so what do you do? You're patient. You try to be wise. You look for fruit. You look for opportunities to, to praise them for when they're doing something right. You're on guard, obviously. But let me tell you, every single culture, magistrate, government who has tried systematically to root out false Christianity has always inevitably persecuted true Christians. It's always happened. Back during the, the time of Constantine, when you, when you had to be a Christian to be a citizen, and they persecuted those who didn't want to play the government game, they persecuted Christians. It happened during the opposition of, of John Huss and his followers. He was a, a true believer. He was a forerunner of the Reformation. It happened during the English Reformation. It happened during Puritan New England with the persecution of the Baptists. Even the, the Salem witch trials. The magistrates in Salem were so eager. to They, you know, they saw the danger. And, and you've got to see this too. You have a brand new colony. You're trying to honor God. And someone comes in, they bring with them evil practices and they're accused of witchcraft. And your, your bent is to say, oh no. We worked so hard to get here. Half of our families died on the ships. We don't want to wreck the blessing that God has given to us. We have to get this stuff out. And so what do they do? In their overzealous attitudes toward rooting out evil, they start to kill people and persecute them. And by the time... The governor comes back from his mission, and by the time that Increase Mathers shows up, they have dozens of people who are sitting in the cells and 20 people dead. All in an effort to root out false Christianity. This happened in the 20th century during the fundamentalist movement, trying to just make sure that the church is pure and setting up rules and standards to just make sure that there's no false converts in this church. But you will always always persecute true believers. Anytime we, as believers, try to take God's place to bring down judgment and purge the church, it will always fail. Because we don't have the authority to do that. Yet the Lord tells the church to be on guard against the infiltration of savage wolves. He's, he tells, this is why elders are so important. We have to watch over and if you spy someone coming in and they're bringing false doctrine with them, you root them out. This is why church discipline is so important. 
Because, and again, the Lord gives us several different steps here. If your brother sins against you, go to them privately. You're not calling down hellfire and brimstone on them. You go to them privately and you say, brother, sister, you're in sin. I'm calling you to repentance between you and me. I'm calling you to repentance. And what does Jesus say? If they listen to you, you've won your brother. Great. Praise the Lord. If they don't listen, you bring other believers with you. And you plead with them and you say, brother, I love you. And it's because I love you that we're here to, to bring you back to the Lord. And if they listen to you then, well, great, you've won your brother. And then if they don't listen to that group, that's when you bring in the church. Again, to call down judgment on them? No. You bring them before the assembly so the church can plead with them. So all of us go after this sinning brother or sister and say, please, we beg you to forsake your sin and come back to us. And what does Jesus say at that point? If at that point, if every single believer in the gathered assembly around that person, if they don't listen to the entire church, then treat them like a sinner or tax gatherer. Then you excommunicate them out in the hopes and in the prayer that they will come back in repentance. But Jesus has given us a very specific series of steps to follow not to bring down judgment and hellfire on every single person you suspect to be a non-Christian. This is so important. We can be discerning in a case-by-case basis, but yet we are never, ever called to try and purge the whole church of all false converts. You will inevitably destroy the good seed that has been sown. And so many people, so many people have told stories and even come to this assembly. Many of you have been burned by other churches wrongly. Sometimes when you get burned, I hate to say it, sometimes it's your fault. But there are times when you've been sinned against by someone else and they treat you as though you are a sinning brother or you're an unbeliever and you really, that, you're really, that's not true. And they wound you and they hurt you. So what do we do? What do we do then? Because we want a pure assembly, don't we? What do we do? We wait on the Lord. Look at verses 40 to 42. Jesus himself says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and throw them into the, fire, the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wheat and the tares, they grow together in the church and in the world, they grow together and they wait until the Lord returns. And verse, uh, Revelation 20 describes the fate of those who reject God at the end. Who, the, the, the sowers are the sons of the evil one, as well as the devil himself. Revelation 20.10 says that all those, the devil and all his children, they will be thrown into the lake of fire and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's a solemn warning. Who are those who are judged this way? Verse 41 says, all those who are stumbling blocks to others. Someone comes into the assembly or someone from outside the world and they cause believers to stumble and they fall into sin or transgression. Remember what the Lord says in Matthew 18 earlier on about those who cause stumbling blocks to those who are his children? He says it would be better for them if you were to tie a millstone around their neck and throw them into the sea and drown them. 
And, you, and you, you think to yourself, why would Jesus say that? That's horrible. Because he is warning about what he will do to all those who try to ruin the assembly, who try to ruin the church. If you cause believers to stumble and you don't repent and you don't come to Christ, you will be judged harshly. That's also a comfort for us that our righteousness given to us, that our assembly here, that the purity of faith and the purity of salvation will be guarded and preserved by the Lord Himself. Then there's those who commit lawlessness. Not just believers who sin and then can repent. No, those who are giving themselves over to lawless deeds and sinfulness. Those who are addicted to debauchery. Jesus says they will be judged severely. How severely? Look at what he says. Jesus here illustrates the horrors of hell. He says there's a place they're going to go where there is unceasing weeping day and night and the gnashing of teeth in misery. Ever gnashed your teeth before? Ever bite down really hard one time by accident and it hurts, you, it hurts your teeth? Imagine doing that day in and day out in hell for eternity. In misery, and agony. Hell is not a place where you just go with all your party friends. That's not hell. Hell is a place of mourning and weeping and pain and suffering apart from the grace and the presence of God, tormented by your own sin and by the enemy. It's a horrible, horrible future for those who reject the gospel. And it's not a future that we would wish on anybody. And it's not something we would ever pronounce on somebody to get back at them for something. Well, if you don't follow our tune, then we're going we're gonna to kick you out and we're going to damn you. No. That's not our job, beloved. It's not our job. We approach these topics with fear and trembling. It's a horrible thing for the person who falls into the hands of the living God. It's terrifying for them. But it puts a, a stark warning on anyone who would try and infiltrate the church to destroy it. There's a, a, a severe warning. And I'll tell you what, what else does it do? It motivates us. It motivates us to examine ourselves and to look deep down inside and say, do I really love the Lord? Do I really love Him? Do I really belong to Him? Beloved, examine yourself. I'm not talking about throwing stones at your assurance. That's not what I'm talking about. If you belong to Christ, you're His. Why? Because He saved you. But as the beloved of God, examine yourself. Test your faith. Test yourself. If you find that you're in open rebellion against God in your own life, if you're living in sinful rebellion, stop dead in your tracks and repent and say, Lord, I've been doing the wrong thing for, for days now, for weeks now, for months now. I've been rebelling against you. Lord, now I'm aware of it. So forgive me. Have mercy on me. Stop what you're doing and repent of your sins and find forgiveness in Christ. He'll give it to you. He will forgive you any sin you confess. But you must confess. And so yes, this warning is for all those who are false. The Lord judges. But then we see verse 43. 43 
is our reality, beloved. Look at verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then Jesus says this, he who has ears, let him hear. This is taken from Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Again, this is at the judgment at the end of the, of the age. He says, many who sleep will awake to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And then he says, but the righteous will shine forth as the sun. Again, these are not those who believe themselves to be righteous in their own pride and arrogance, but rather those who are the recipients of the righteousness of Christ. They then will shine forth like the sun. For us, our future is so bright we won't want to wear shades, the old saying goes. Encourage your heart, beloved. Encourage your heart. There is a great sower. There is a great sower who his purposes cannot be thwarted. And he sows believers into his field all over the world. All over the world his gospel goes. And take heart because he will judge righteously on the last day. You don't have to worry. But, 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 they, but they're not a Christian. Don't worry about it. Do what you have to do. Preach the gospel to them. If they're in the gathered assembly and they're in sin and it's open and, it's, and it's, it's out there for all of us to see, then, well, yeah, go to them. But don't worry about what's happening in the world. Don't worry about false Christianity. Jesus says, I will take care of it. The enemy will try to sow discord through false brethren, but his efforts are going to prove useless in the end. Are there going to be false converts that come into this assembly? Yes, there will be. And I would bet there might even be some sitting here today. I don't know. But maybe there are some among us that don't really love Christ. I don't know why all of you are here. I know why I think some of you are here. But, but truth be told, only God really knows what's going on inside you. But it's not our job to worry. Don't worry about it. Instead, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Guard your life. Be sure, beloved, be sure that you really love Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Him? Is He your Savior? Have you confessed your sins to Him? Have you found forgiveness in Christ? Do you love the gathered assembly? Do you love the church? Do you love one another? It's very simple. Now, there are times when you're going to be at odds with people, but in the end, it's going to be okay. There's a way to work things out and forgive and extend forgiveness and, and be forgiven, confess to one another. But in the end, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord because He is sovereign over all things in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are the Lord of all creation. And all of this, the whole world and the whole church is your field. It's your gathered vineyard. And you do in your creation whatever you want to do. And Lord Jesus, the Bible tells us, you say very clearly that you sow believers all throughout the entire world. And you gather all of us into assemblies, into churches. where We can serve you and worship you and proclaim your excellencies and teach your word. 
And Lord, we also know that the enemy comes in and will sow seeds of discord and false faith all over the place. And Father, we confess that we struggle with this because we don't want there to be those who are false and in rebellion. We don't want the work of the Lord to be rooted out here. We want to preserve and guard and protect what we have. And so, Lord, we would also ask that in our concern for that, let us not be like James and John. Let us not be sons of thunder who want to call down judgment on those who oppose us. But, Lord, what do you tell us? To love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Help that convict us, Lord. I pray that that is true of us. We would love others and pray for our opponents. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. Help us to be all the more sure of what our faith truly is. Help us to love you and serve you in full faith. And we praise you for your grace and your mercy. And Spirit of God, that you would continue to convict us of our sin to bind our hearts to other believers, to work in us mightily, grow us in the knowledge and love of Christ, and preserve us until the end. We know that you will. And so we thank you for your loving kindness to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.